Welcome to Thoughts from Home, your conservation podcast from the National Conservation Training Center. We're located along the Potomac River in historic Shepherdstown, West Virginia, and are home to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Throughout this series, we'll be talking with experts, authors, and a variety of other guests to bring you the most up-to-date information, events, and happenings here at the National Conservation Training Center. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy. My name is Katherine Woodward, and I'm a fish and wildlife biologist in the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service Library, which is home to over 2,700 journals, 11,000 print and ebooks, 28,000 high-quality images, and much more. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service Library has a quarterly virtual book club known as America's Wild Read that focuses on inspiring others to connect with the outdoors and nature through conservation literature. This April, we're excited to read or reread for many of us Rachel Carson's Silent Spring, the classic that launched the environmental movement on its 60th anniversary year. Conservation hero Rachel Carson was a renowned author and one of the first female biologists to work for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. She became one of the most celebrated and beloved science writers in America. But it's easy to forget how controversial Silent Spring was when it was released, despite now being a classic of conservation literature. Rachel Carson had an unusual talent to communicate science through her writing. Silent Spring opens with a fable of a world imagined that's been devastated by pesticides. The birds are gone, fish have died, livestock are all sick, and the people are as well. It's eerie and frightening, visual and powerful. Silent Spring shares an alarming message of the harmful and toxic effects of overusing pesticides, specifically DDT. This very powerful pesticide was capable of killing hundreds of different kinds of pests at once. Carson describes how it enters the food chain and accumulates in the bodies of animals, including humans. Common pesticides, or biocides as Carson called them, didn't just kill insects. They continued to remain toxic in the environment and killed non-targeted species. As a result of her powerful book, DDT came under closer government supervision and was eventually banned. The legacy of Silent Spring is how public sentiment about our impact on the environment evolved and led to increased environmental regulation. More importantly, through Silent Spring, we learned that nature is vulnerable and we must be careful about what we do because we can damage the natural environment. Carson inspires us to live in harmony with nature, to preserve and learn from the natural systems and its intricacies. Silent Spring's publication and impact are seen as the beginning of the environmental movement. This best-selling book and its message remains popular today, even 60 years after its publication. In the next segment of the podcast, you'll hear from Ellie George, a previous intern with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service Library and Museum Archive. She shares more on Rachel Carson's books, as well as her life and legacy. Some evil spell had settled on the community. Mysterious maladies swept the flocks of chickens, and the cattle and sheep sickened and died. Everywhere was the shadow of death. The farmers told of much illness among their families. In the town, the doctors were becoming more and more puzzled by new kinds of sickness that had appeared among their patients. 
There had been several sudden and unexplained deaths, not only among the adults, but also among the children, who would be stricken while they were at play, and would die within a few hours. And there was a strange stillness. The birds, for example, where had they gone? Many people, baffled and disturbed, spoke of them. The feeding stations in the backyards were deserted. The few birds to be seen anywhere were moribund. They trembled violently and could not fly. It was a spring without voices. In the mornings, which had once throbbed with the dawn chorus of robins, catbirds, doves, jays, and wrens, and scores of other bird voices, there was now no sound. Only silence lay over the fields and woods and marshes. On the farms, the hens brooded, but no chicks hatched. The farmers complained that they were unable to raise any pigs. The litters were small, and the young survived only a few days. The apple trees were coming into bloom, but no bees droned among the blossoms, so there was no pollination, and there would be no fruit. The roadsides were lined with brown and withered vegetation, and were silent, too, deserted by all living things. Even the streams were lifeless. Anglers no longer visited them, for all the fish had died. In the gutters, under the eaves, and between the shingles of the roofs, a few patches of white granular powder could be seen. Some weeks earlier, this powder had been dropped, like snow, upon the roofs and the lawns, the fields and the streams. No witchcraft, no enemy action had snuffed out life in this stricken world. The people had done it to themselves. The almost post-apocalyptic narrative you just heard wasn't from the latest sci-fi novel or end-of-times prophecy. It was from Silent Spring, a book that served as a major breakthrough in the field of conservation and as a wake-up call concerning the scientific awareness of the public. Within its pages, marine biologist Rachel Carson painted a dire portrait of the quickly progressing issue of excessive organic chemical pesticide use and how they traveled up through the food chain to indiscriminately destroy the world around us. The most notable of these was dichlorodiphenyl trichloroethane, or DDT, which caused the effects of birds described in the passage. If I had kept reading, you would have heard a disclaimer that this specific town doesn't really exist, but that each individual malady within that passage had taken place somewhere by the time of its writing. Despite this, the people of Carson's time were being constantly reassured that the chemicals posed no risk and were completely safe to throw abundantly into the environment around them. The title of the book, Silent Spring, is a reference to the startling quiet being experienced in areas where birds had begun to die off in alarming numbers, even though they were not being directly targeted by the pesticide sprays. One could draw the conclusion that, had Carson and those who amplified her message not spoken so powerfully for change, the birds may have only been the first of the creatures to fall silent. The vital factors in Silent Spring's success were not only the information that it contained, 
but the tone and writing style that Carson used to present it. Despite having a formal education in chemistry and a master's in biology, Carson did not fall to the overly technical and sometimes presumptuous language that is common in scientific writing. She wrote and spoke not from the perspective of a researcher, but from that of an individual concerned for the safety and right to information of her fellow humans. It wasn't her field specialization. She wasn't an entomologist or organic chemist. She just didn't want to see it all crumble around her in the name of so-called scientific advancement. Carson's past experience in creative writing lent itself to the effectiveness of her warnings. The fact that the common reader might not know what exactly a chlorinated hydrocarbon is doesn't detract from the real-life examples and careful explanations that she offers for what they do. Her powerful imagery and, at times, flowery descriptions strengthen rather than take away from her scientific research. The style and conviction that Carson uses is not exclusive to this piece. In fact, it seems to have permeated not only her other writing, but her very being. She carried with her a sense of quiet determination in everything that she did, whether it was her own studies or the education of a nation. For all her training and fieldwork, Carson was first and foremost a writer. In this next segment, a lot of the information that I have is from Linda Lear's book, Rachel Carson, Witness for Nature. It's been incredibly useful in getting a glimpse into Carson before her media boom, so while I'm not able to cover every detail here, I'd recommend it to anyone who wants a deeper look at her full story. Born May 27, 1907, Rachel Louise Carson was the third child of Robert and Maria Carson. She spent her upbringing in a farmhouse just outside Springdale, Pennsylvania. It was modest, especially by today's standards. There was no central heating, no indoor plumbing, and limited electric lighting. The family never made enough money to upgrade any of these features during their time there, but what her childhood lacked in the latest amenities was made up for by her mother's ability to instill in her a fascination for learning about the natural world. As she grew up, Maria Carson shared her love of reading with Rachel, along with hands-on personal lessons in natural history, botany, and birds in what Leah refers to as their 64-acre laboratory. In addition to regular time spent exploring outdoors, Rachel and Maria also read, drew, and discussed their observations together. Despite having two older siblings, her early childhood was primarily spent with her mother while her sister and brother were away at school, which marked the beginning of her relatively solitary early years. One of the regular pieces of Carson's library was St. Nicholas, which was a children's magazine that provided a place for its young readers to publish their own work. To give an idea of its reputation, some of the authors published within its pages included young F. Scott Fitzgerald and William Faulkner. At the age of 10, going on 11, Rachel submitted her very first story to St. Nicholas, A Battle in the Clouds. It was the retelling of the death of a Canadian flying instructor in battle, and won her a silver award for excellence in prose. Such recognition must have spurred her on, because she went on to submit three more stories in that same year. Her fourth piece, a famous sea flight, led to her being awarded the status of honor member, 
along with a $10 cash prize. While I don't have these pieces to read aloud, her repeated publication and awards indicate that she must have showed a notable level of technical skill at this young age. By the time she was 14, Carson attempted to sell a piece to the magazine. As Lear writes, quote, Assistant editor Francis Marshall replied that while they could not buy her essay for St. Nicholas, they could use it for publicity work and paid her for it at the rate of a cent a word, end quote. Her early success in publication was not a one-time burst of fortune, as Carson went on to receive top marks all throughout her education and was readily accepted into Pennsylvania Women's College with a $100 academic scholarship. Her family jumped into action to sell whatever they could, from silverware to land, in order to cover the additional cost of room and board. To everyone's delight, but no one's surprise, Rachel Carson was about to enter a new chapter of life. Curious things happen to the animals that have ridden on the sargassum weed into a new home. Once they lived near the sea's edge, a few feet or a few fathoms below the surface, but never far above a firm bottom. They knew the rhythmic movements of waves and tides. They could leave the shelter of the weeds at will and creep or swim about over the bottom in search of food. Now, in the middle of the ocean, they are in a new world. The bottom lies two or three miles below them. Those who are poor swimmers must cling to the weed, which now represents a life raft, supporting them above the abyss. The Sea Around Us, Rachel Carson Much like the sea life that she would go on to study, Rachel likely felt as if she was leaving the familiar comfort of her own seafloor. Although she was only 16 miles from her home and received frequent visits from her mother, Pennsylvania Women's College was rather different from the cozy farmhouse of her earlier years. For a while, Rachel's reserved habits and self-trusting demeanor gave her the appearance of being disinterested in meeting her classmates. However, she eventually branched out and gradually established herself as a quiet but reliable presence on the campus. Initially, Carson had entered PWC as an English major. Her past experience in writing and encouragement from her mother had her on the path to becoming a career writer. Her English professor sung praises of her work, and it seemed that she had made the right choice. However, her love of the natural world followed her and took full effect once she enrolled in a biology course to fulfill her science credit. Mary Scott Skinker was the target of mixed opinions. Some avoided her due to her high standards for herself and her students. She was also, however, described as elegant and soft-spoken, outgoing and professional. It doesn't take much to see how she would soon become a role model for young Carson. Skinker taught biology at PWC and quickly recognized the level of dedication that Carson showed to the class and subject matter. The combination of Carson's admiration for Skinker and her already present interest in nature quickly swayed her towards science. Initially, she kept her major in English and added a biology minor, but after much deliberation, Rachel Carson switched to biology full-time. Carson's reclusive nature often gave off the initial impression of unfriendliness. 
This changed, however, once people got a better chance to know her. She was noted as going out of her way to help a freshman adjust a slide that she had been having trouble focusing, and the two went on to become good friends. Rachel, as it turned out, wasn't rude or unfriendly. She, like many of us, simply found it a little more difficult to reach out. Growing up outside of town with her mother as her best friend didn't often provide opportunities to form or consistently maintain friendships outside of school, but once given the chance to open up, she proved a valuable member of her close-knit group of friends at Pennsylvania Women's College. Carson kept in touch with both Skinker and her peers as she moved on to Johns Hopkins for her master's degree. Skinker was actually the reason Carson decided to go to Johns Hopkins in the first place, since she herself had moved from PWC to work on her own doctorates there. Despite struggles with finances caused by the depression and debts, Carson successfully earned her master's from Johns Hopkins and started work towards a PhD program in 1932. Around this time, her entire family was living with her in Baltimore, and she supported them by working as a lab assistant and a teacher, all while studying for her own further education. Unfortunately for Rachel, however, she was not a superhuman. As Jill Lepore writes in her article in The New Yorker, The Right Way to Remember Rachel Carson, there was even a time when the family lived on nothing but apples. This level of poverty wasn't sustainable, and Carson was forced to leave her program to support her family and herself. The position that she ended up taking was with the U.S. Bureau of Fisheries in the Public Education Department. The Bureau, of course, would later go on to become the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. She also sold relevant articles to the Baltimore Sun for extra money on the side. So, it seems, despite the many twists and turns in her path, young Rachel had been right. Although a decade prior, she would not have been able to guess that she'd end up in a government position, Rachel Carson was a writer after all. Carson ended up working with the Bureau for 16 years, having started off at a salary of $19.25 a week. Mark Madison, Fish and Wildlife Service historian at the National Conservation Training Center, reports that she was the first woman biologist ever hired by the Bureau, and one of only two women not in a clerical position. She was assigned to write radio scripts explaining marine biology to the general public, along with other aspects of the Bureau of Fisheries. Some of her work for the Bureau was government brochures, but her writing during this time also branched into pieces that she ended up publishing separately. Lepore's article also included that one essay was deemed too good for government work by the head of Carson's department, who suggested that she publish it in the Atlantic. And thus, Undersea was published. Soon after, Carson began work on her first book, Under the Sea Wind, by drafting it onto the back of National Recovery Administration stationery. It didn't receive much attention at the time of its first publishing in 1941, but unknown to Carson, it would resurface with her next book, like a whale drawn to shore by the krill. The Sea Around Us, published in 1951, discussed such phenomena as these surfacing whales with poetic reverence, which encouraged readers to imagine the wonders of the ocean beyond what they could see from the beaches. She paints a picture of, quote, prawn creeping over the soft oozes of the sea floor in the blackness of mild deep water, end quote and explains that the ghostly lights from the protozoan Noctiluca seem to be a hard, brilliant, coruscating phosphorescence that illuminates the summer sea.
For as long as we have known the sea and how to write, we have yearned for the sun-kissed sands or gentle lap of the waves. Here, though, Carson seems as if she's narrating the world around her, as if she is part of the oceans, rather than simply an outside admirer. She makes it feel like the sea really is around us. The surge of attention that this work brought her also revived interest in her previous book, which was reissued and subsequently joined The Sea Around Us as a bestseller. With this push into the limelight came a slew of attention, and not all of it was flattering. Her femininity was often diminished or overly focused on, with some reviewers supposing that she must be forbidding and strong in stature, and others, once they found her, offering detailed physical descriptions and comments on her use of cosmetics. The literary scene seemed shocked that a small and slender woman could command such knowledge about the hearty, manly world of the sea. If this assessment bothered Carson, it certainly didn't slow her down. Some of it even caused her a good bit of amusement. A friend and colleague, Shirley Briggs, drew a cartoon captioned Rachel as her readers seemed to imagine her, which biographer Lear described as depicting Carson as, quote, a female of Amazonian proportions striding the seas, long hair tossing in the wind, an octopus in one hand, sea spear in the other, end quote. Personally, I think I would be flattered if someone imagined me that way. Now, two things happened between the publication of Under the Sea Wind and The Sea Around Us that are important to know. First, Carson became aware of the expanding use of DDT, that long-named chlorinated hydrocarbon from earlier. It had initially been used by the military to kill lice, but was growing in the States as a commercial pesticide for farms and gardens. This news upset her because it was largely untested for these uses and seemed to already be causing the deaths of animals other than those intended. Wanting to raise awareness, she had contacted Reader's Digest regarding an article about its potential to upset the balance of nature, but they declined. Second, in both 1946 and 1950, Carson had surgery to remove cysts from her breast. As her health declined, it became clear that she may not have as much time to speak as she thought. It must have felt like an axe was suspended over her writing desk, spurring her to action despite never knowing when it may fall. She was careful to stay as private as possible about her condition, though, as she began work on her final project, Silent Spring. There are plenty of reviews, articles, and other podcasts out there that talk about Silent Spring. You can read analyses of the public response, find rebukes from the chemical companies that went as far as film interviews pitting a stereotypically lab-coated man against the sweet ant image of Carson. Literary enthusiasts, academic journals, pesticide manufacturers, and regular people living near farmland all had something to say about this book, whether it was reverential or condemning. I'm not going to try to summarize the scope of it here, aside from saying that it was a lot. But what did Rachel have to say? What did this writer-turned-scientist-turned-writer-again think of being within the forefront of a vital national movement for environmental protection? Clearly, she was no stranger to the limelight. The sea around us had gotten her no short supply of interviews, photographers, and ever-persistent letters. This was different, though, as the controversy came not just from who she was to write about such things, but why and how she wrote them. 
Every possible attack that could be used against her was being utilized, both in an attempt to discredit her as a scientist and author, and also to shut down her warnings entirely. This was why she had hidden her cancer. No one could try to erroneously argue that her work was only the rambling product of a scared and dying woman if they did not know how her body was failing her. All of her research was meticulously checked, and this book was the product of years of observation and data collection. Yet, by all accounts, Rachel had been reluctant to write it in the first place. Her muse was nature, not its destruction. But she knew that someone had to step up to keep the creatures living within nature, humans included, free from careless and indiscriminate destruction. She was tired. With each passing year, her body slipped further toward its final destination, and still she attended conferences, spoke in interviews, and stood her ground on what she knew to be right. Even when she could no longer stand, Rachel quietly held her head high. I wonder, too, how Carson would have felt knowing that even after the sea around us got so big, the main association that people have with her today is a book about the danger of overusing pesticides. Others have commented on this, I'm sure, and it's easy to speculate. Would she have felt slighted that her main legacy was so far from her usual passions? Perhaps. It would certainly be strange for a younger Carson to imagine. I like to think, though, that there's a brighter side to the divergence of passion and necessity in Carson's writing. Sure, Silent Spring is the first thing to come to mind when we talk about her work. Instead of imagining the brilliantly narrated world of the ocean, we think of spasming birds slowly dying amidst withered roadsides. We recall warnings of what streams and forests would have become if not for the slowing and reduction of brute force pest control methods. But if not for the strong implanting of these dire scenarios in our minds, would we still have those worlds of beauty in the same way? Would the bird songs be so frequent, the rivers so full of fish to supply the bears and eagles. In sacrificing the legacy of her choice, Rachel Carson did something more than express her appreciation for the beautiful world around her. She helped to keep it that way. And so did everyone who worked alongside her. Every field biologist that gathered wildlife data, each botanist noting the way that the herbicides killed off more than just the weeds. Every individual who had a role in gathering and reporting seemingly isolated incidents, no matter how small they may have been, is responsible for the fact that we still have blue jays and wildflowers to write about. So don't think of Carson as some legendary conservation hero. She wouldn't have wanted you to. Instead, look to all of those who made her path possible. I would argue that every single one of those small-town field workers is just as much of a hero as the one who put it all together in the limelight. Which one are you going to be?
Thank you for listening to the National Conservation Training Center podcast series. If you have feedback, thoughts, or stories you'd like to share, contact us at nctc underscore podcast at fws.gov.